Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a bi-weekly look at all things related to the growing elite clubs nationally, the ECNL. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. Now, here's your host for Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, former U.S. soccer press officer and longtime soccer broadcaster, Dean Linke. I am Dean Linke, joined by the ECNL Boys Commissioner, Jason Cutney, and we've got an outstanding show, an interesting show, as we have both a coach and a young woman who's the daughter of a coach that has made it to college, even though she's only played one year in the ECNL. I'll let them set the table for this week's show. Hi, this is Martin Rennie, proud to have coached professionally at every level in the U.S. and even overseas. Even more proud to have a daughter, Lauren, who has experienced the value of the ECNL. And this is Lauren Rennie saying thank you to the ECNL for helping me take my game to the next level and to play in college. So join Lauren and me, Martin Rennie, on this week's Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. And guess what? That's exactly what we'll do. Jason Cutney and I will join Martin Rennie and Lauren Rennie after this message from the ECNL. As the game continues to evolve in the United States, the ECNL remains the standard of excellence in youth soccer. The Elite Clubs National League has grown to include over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players across the country with a robust competition platform for teams, educational resources for coaches and clubs, and unparalleled identification and development opportunities for players. Alongside its member clubs, collaborating to create a better future, the ECNL continues to raise the game every day. The ECNL is more than a league. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Once again, here's Dean. This is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. I'm Dean Linky, pleased to be joined by the commissioner for ECNL boys, Jason Cutney, as I often am. And I am so delighted about today's guests on so many layers. We're talking about Martin Rennie, a name that's familiar to USL League Two, to USL League One, to Major League Soccer over in Korea back to USL Championship. And now Martin Rennie is also joined by Lauren Rennie, who just started playing soccer about four years ago, had one year of ECNL, and that was enough to get a chance to play at NAIA Indiana Wesleyan in Marion, Indiana. And of course, I knew Lauren when she was just a tiny tot. So first of all, let me say hello to Martin and Lauren Rennie. Thanks for being on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thanks, Dean. Appreciate it. And Lauren, do you remember me at all? <laughs> a little bit yeah all right well congratulations by the way on going to indiana westland well done yeah thank you i'm really excited about the opportunity all right so jason before i turn it over to you to raise the intellectual capacity of this interview i do want to tell the story of as you know jason i've been a broadcaster a long long time i was working for the carolina railhawks while also freelancing and i called the usl2 championship which i understand they beat you by the way jason earlier in the season and I went in a day early, watched Martin work, and then called the game. They beat Charlotte. They won the USL2. I came back to the owners of the Carolina Railhawks and said, hey, I found your coach. And sure enough, Martin Rennie became the coach of the Carolina Railhawks and then went on to MLS and great things. Martin, that's how I remember that story. Can you add anything to that? Yeah, I remember it well. It was funny because 
usually when you're doing a, a chat with the broadcaster, you know, before the game, it's usually 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. You, you spoke to me for like an hour and a half. You were asking me question after question. And I, I remember coming off the call feeling like it was more of an interview than, uh, than just a broadcast uh, interview. And uh, turns out that's what it was. And I'm, I'm so glad it was. We had a great time there in Carolina, beautiful place to live. But we had a great team too. We won a lot. We, we really did great things there. And, uh, you know, been great to have friendship with you ever since that time and really appreciate all that you did to help me get that chance because it was a big step in my career and who knows how it could have opened up if it hadn't been for that. So I, I really do look, look back on that fondly. And I remember you saying to me, I think it was just before the, the game, actually, the final, you were like, do you think you'd be interested in Real Hawks? And I was like, uh, I'm thinking about the final and I'm sure I said, yeah, yeah, I'd be interested. But right then I was just thinking we need to win this game and, and get that over with. So yeah, good memories and certainly a great place where Lauren and her sister Chloe were there growing up and uh, started you know, school there and things like that. So yeah, fond memories. Brilliant. Well, good place to start. We want to get into so many things about your development as a coach. And then we also do want to touch on what you've seen from the EC and now as Lauren just played one year and now is going to be able to play college. But to turn it over to, again, to raise the intellectual capacity of this interview, I'm going to turn it over to Jason Cutney for a bit, but looking forward to today's show. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Dean. And, and Martin and Lauren, thanks for joining us here today. It's, it's definitely an honor to have you guys on. And as Dean pointed out, so so uh, so vividly in my imagination here, we we won that game in Cleveland, but actually we did lose that game. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up, Dean. When we first got started with the Pittsburgh Riverhounds and kind of getting that group back up and running, we took the 2007 year off from playing, and we came back in our first game back to start that next year. It's what the 20 or 2008 season was against Cleveland in Cleveland. It was also actually the start of the Steel Army, which was uh, Pittsburgh supporters section. They they went out. I think there was probably about 15 to 20 of them at that point, but they traveled out to Cleveland. And uh, unfortunately, we lost that game, but had a chance to see Martin and, and see the Cleveland team. And you know, they, it was no surprise to me that they were going to go on and win it. And a couple of years down the line, we actually ended up getting Hunter Gilstrap, who was the goalkeeper for that Cleveland team. And Hunter's still a, a very close friend of mine in Pittsburgh and a lifelong friend, really, but an excellent goalkeeper as well. So a little background there for, uh, for myself and Martin. So you're, you're up 1-0 here to start the interview. Congrats on that. I'll see if I can throw you some heavy hitters here. But you've had a long career, and, and really you've made your mark in the coaching realm around the world. You've had the opportunity to get in at the ground floor with a number of clubs as well and, and really kind of roll up the sleeves and get to work. I mean, in your earliest years, you were successful in leading clubs to a pretty immediate and, and really unprecedented success, like with Cleveland and with Vancouver. I was able to witness that in Cleveland, of course, as I just mentioned, but you were able to then propel yourself into those other opportunities as you went ahead. When you get into an organization and, you know, soccer club or other, what are the key indicators that change is needed, whether it be in the culture of the organization, the management of the people, et cetera? Because obviously when you're starting in as a coach at a new club or a new franchise, you're really at the helm and you are responsible for a lot more than just those 18 to 24 players that you're managing. So give us a little bit of insight into when you stepped into those clubs and the different cultures you, uh, you walked into and what you did first to kind of get started. Yeah, well, most of the most of those jobs um, were, were situations like either an expansion team or a team that wasn't doing very well before I got there. 
And so one of the first things I always think you have to improve or, or set up is, a, is the winning mentality and the culture. You have to get a, a culture where people believe they can be successful, where they believe that they can win. And then you have to set certain standards and expectations so that people follow those and, and buy in. Because if you don't set the culture, then it kind of sets itself. And usually if it sets itself, it doesn't end up being a positive, dynamic, winning culture. So I think that's one of the first things. I think it's also really important to know how you want to play. So that gives you kind of a, a clarity and a blueprint for how you're going to recruit, how you're going to train, who you're going to maybe not keep on your team, uh, because that's really key. If you've got a clear philosophy or a style of play um, in mind, then that really dictates all your other decisions. So you're not just signing a player because he's a good player. You're signing a player because he's a good player for you and for your team and for your system. Um, right there in Pittsburgh, you know, Bob Lilly's probably the master of that. He's got an idea of how he wants to play. And then he, he can find players then that are not valued by other people, but he knows they're going to be valuable to him. And I think I've done that as well over the years where there's been players that maybe other people didn't want or weren't willing to pay too much for, but I knew they would be good, good for us and they would do well for us. So I think getting the culture right, being clear on how you want to play, and then also communicating clearly how you want to play to everybody else so that everyone else is on the same page and understands what their job is and what their role is. It goes on from there in the sense that it comes down to then building bigger, bigger connections between, let's say, the youth team and the first team. Uh, something that we did in Indy, for example, was connect up the, the youth academy to the first team and then manage to get young players training and playing with our first team, but then also playing in, in youth games as well. And then it's also connecting the community aspect of it. Like, for example, when we went to Carolina, Castle was the big club, 10,000 kids in, in the club, and there wasn't really any connection between the club and, um, and the Railhawks, the professional team. I don't know if you remember this, Dean, but I actually went out and I coached the parents at the rec level to try and build the relationship. And then years later, Kurt Johnston really took that to a totally different level. And now the club's called NCFC, the pro team's called NCFC, the, the, the youth team's NCFC, the women's team, obviously slightly different, but there's an amazing connection there. And none of that existed before, before we got, got working there in Carolina. So there's a lot of layers to it, um, but more than anything, a positive attitude, belief you can do it, and then you drag a lot of people with you. It's interesting because you started, I think you started in Oregon, right, with Cascade, the PDL team? Yep. And then went from there into Cleveland. I, I'm interested is, you know, after Cleveland, you obviously went up and, and had the experience with, with, I think it was Carolina, then Vancouver, correct? Yep. Um, and then Indy. But any lessons, specific lessons learned in either Cascade or Cleveland that you think set you on your way for those, those other organizations? Yeah, definitely. Because those, those first two opportunities, um, I had been in, in business. I was playing semi-professional soccer back in Scotland. I was in business and had all these ideas about how I wanted to, how, how I wanted to coach. And in the meantime, I was doing all of my coaching qualifications. So a lot of people ask me, how did you become a coach or what did you do? And what happened was when I was about 24 or maybe even a little younger, I decided that I wanted to become a coach. And so then I set up a plan of how to go about doing that. Um, and I worked backwards from that point. So I, I, I figured like, first of all, I've got a family and I need to provide for them. So I, I was working and I knew I had to save some money and things like that if I wanted to retire at 30 and start coaching. And then I thought, well, what qualifications do I have to have? Who do I need to know? What network do I need to have? What are the skills I would need to improve upon? And I just worked on those things year after year after year 
So then when I got to that point at 30 years old, I was actually ready to become a coach at that point. So I thought about what would the re ideal resume look like at that point, rather than I'm going to start coaching at 30 and then I'm going to start building my resume. So what happened was the ideas worked because I quickly went from PDL to USL2 to USL1 to MLS and then to the K-League. And that was all, you know, to MLS from, from PDL was about five years, which was really quick. And I think it was just because I had these ideas and I'd been working on them behind the scenes. Nobody knew I was working on them, but I knew I was. And then when I, when I got the opportunity, I could hit the ground running. So I think that was an important factor in all of those jobs, but especially those first couple. The professional game is certainly, it's an interesting one. And I don't think many understand the direct correlation sometimes that exists between the success on the field and the success off. You know, you've seen that at the lowest levels of, uh, of the you know, semi-professional and up through the highest levels here. And you know, when it comes to ticket sales and merchandise and community support, sponsorship, the youth academies, expansion, all those major decisions that owners have to make and uh, the front office has to deal in every day, you, know, you feel that pressure a lot of times as a head coach because it's easier to sell tickets when you win. More jerseys fly off the shelves when you win, right? And, and the winning ultimately comes back to the head coach, right? It's oftentimes the... The players get kind of leapfrogged in that equation and we look at the head coach, but you know, I think controlling the controllables oftentimes is more easily said than done when it comes to coaching at those levels. Uh, so I guess my question is, you know, you, you had that experience at Blackbaud in sales and marketing, a little known fact here when I started in Charleston Battery, it was at Blackbaud Stadium there. So our, our, uh, yeah. our lines keep crossing here, but how do you think that experience at Blackbaud and sales and marketing, you know, you're doing that at the same time as trying to build up your coaching acumen and, and resume and, how did those lessons apply to player management? And I, I think, you know, I'll, I'll kind of dovetail that in one thing. Hunter Gilstrap actually spoke to me about you a ways back and he gave you a good, you know, good kudos here. He said you were the one coach that really approached everything from the psychological perspective and how it affected players. So I have to think that the, the experience at Blackboard and, and that, you know, the professional world outside of the game of football or soccer, how did that affect the way you manage players, the way you manage front office staff relationships, the way you manage just the, the club culture? Yeah, I think it definitely had a big impact. One of the things was I was working with some really bright people um, and I learned a lot from them. I remember one of the CEOs, Bob Sawalski, was just a brilliant guy and learned so many things from him. And it was so much about people and about psychology and then the skills could be built on top of that. Most people do it the opposite way where you have to have certain skill set and then you build in the other things. But of course, at professional soccer, you have to have a high skill set. But there's many players who have that. It's trying to find that in, that, that kind of intangible or that, that person who's maybe underperforming mentally and you can develop. And Hunter's a brilliant example. Hunter has all the tools to be a great goalkeeper, physically, technically. But he was coming from a situation in Miami where he hadn't done too, too well just out of college. And we really worked a lot on building his mentality, trying to teach him that his past didn't dictate his future, trying to teach him that the biggest competitor he had was himself, and then teaching him how to re-engineer re his, his self-image, his view of himself, and then set some goals and then visualize himself achieving those goals and doing those things. And he really bought into it. He worked a lot on positive affirmations, replacing some of the negative thoughts he had about himself. 
And then he started to take off. And those were all things I learned in business. So, you know, if I was going to do a big presentation, I had to have unshakable confidence as I went in there. So I had to have management of that voice in my head. That was, I was the only person who could do that. I had to visualize how I was going to do it, what I was going to say, how I was going to react. And I could plan it all out as if I'd done that call a hundred times about if I did it well in my mind. And that's the same in, in, in soccer and in, in sports. If you can work your mindset first, then on the field, the other things will start to come together. And I think that those are things I definitely learned in business. And the other big one was, as you rightly say, professional soccer is about winning the championship. But when we started in Cleveland, we took a key concept from business that, that I had learned at Blackboard, which was to do with key performance indicators. And that basically was saying, right, the ultimate goal is the championship, but have we done a good job of engaging with our community? Have we done a good job of looking after our players? Have we done a good job of building our sponsorships and getting our sponsorship money up? Have we done a good job of making sure the training facilities are right? And we had all these things that, hey, if it comes to the end of the year and the ball bounces off the post and goes out and we lose the championship, can we still say we've had a good year based on all these other key performance indicators? And, and thankfully, then, if you get those things right, generally, you can end up winning as well. But you can't judge your entire season, your entire existence or your entire coaching life based on just the final championship win. Um, because sometimes you could do well and do everything right and you get a key player injured or you get a sending off or the referee makes a mistake or whatever. And that if, you're, if your entire value and your entire viewpoint of your, your coaching success is just on that one result, then you're going to dr drive yourself crazy mentally. This is fascinating as Martin Rennie matching philosophical wits with Jason Cutney. That is not easy to do, but Martin can pull it off. When we return, we'll talk to Lauren Rennie as well, who just started playing soccer four years ago and now is going to play college soccer. It's Martin Rennie and Lauren Rennie. It's Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. ECNL Boys is partnering with Puma for the second year, driving sport forward with the leading products and the next generation of pros who wear them. Puma has proven themselves as the fastest sports brand in the world, the fastest innovation, the fastest players, and the fastest products in the game. They're the perfect partner to complement the speed and talent of our teams. In keeping with their mantra of forever faster, Puma introduces the world's fastest boot, the Ultra. The only boot engineered for speed, the Ultra combines a woven upper with a lightweight outsole for direct forward motion, speed, and acceleration. It's the best in the game, designed for the best players in the game. Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. We've been delivering quality soccer equipment and apparel to players, fans, and coaches since 1984. Living and breathing the beautiful game ourselves, our goal at Soccer.com is to inspire you to play better, cheer louder, and have more fun. Visit Soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Dean Linky, your host here with Jason Cutney, the commissioner of the Boys League for ECNL. And we 
spent the entire first segment with Martin Rennie. So now we'll bring in Lauren Rennie. And Lauren, I do remember you and your sister. You're obviously very young when Martin first joined the Carolina Railhawks. You're also very shy. And I don't think soccer was a big part of your life. But obviously, come freshman year or thereabouts, you decided to pick up soccer. And here you go. Now you're you're headed to college. So talk about that decision to start playing soccer, particularly later in your young adult life, obviously, as you started walking to high school. And more importantly, because this is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, talk about how ECNL truly helped you late as you get ready to go to college. And now you're going to play in college, which is super exciting. Yeah. So I think I've always been around soccer. I've always enjoyed being around it. And when we were living in Korea, there wasn't really that opportunity to play, to improve so much. So it was just kind of still enjoying watching my dad's games and being around soccer. But then once we came back to the States, there was a lot more opportunity for me to pick up playing and start playing club soccer. And so just having the opportunity there to be with a good team and be playing and training and obviously having my dad to coach me at that time and the facilities there to just go up the road and play that we didn't have in Korea was kind of just the catapult into me playing soccer. So what position do you play and what do you think you'll play in college? I play right back and I think that will be the same for college. I've only really just started playing as a right back since coming to the fire in the CNL because with my school team, a lot of the best players ended up playing in their midfield just to try and make the midfield really strong. So I was playing in there. And then with transferring to club season at the end of school season, I was able to play right back, which suits me well. Martin, I, I will say before we turn it back over to Jason, far beyond the fact that I host this show, I've been exposed to ECNL and it is a fine-tuned machine, right? And I feel like you, as somebody who's experienced every level of soccer in this country and overseas, understands when they see a fine-tuned machine. Can you comment on what you've seen from the ECNL? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a personal story from with Lauren playing was um, I knew that once she started playing, ideally I wanted her to be playing in the ECNL. But I also knew that if she got there too quickly, she wouldn't really be ready for it because it's a really high standard. The kids are, are exceptional. The coaching is fantastic. So she worked with other clubs and I helped to coach a little bit and, and just encouraged her and, and helped her have some success. And then by her by this year, her senior year in high school, she was ready to play play on this ECNL team. And, and Indiana Fire Juniors actually have a great team at this age and at all the ages, they do a great job. And so she, she joined the team. And I remember at first I was like, oh, this is just going to be a little bit too much of a stretch. Like the standard's just really, really high. But... To be fair to Lauren, she, she was there. She was there every, every night. She was there like three or four times a week training. Um, we train at Grand Park, which is one of the best soccer facilities in the world, probably, and it's just up the street from us. And then, yeah, she started getting playing, started developing, playing those games on the weekend, and just being around such good players and such high-level coaches I just, it was amazing to see her game just improve and improve and improve. And then going and, and I was around lots of the games. I went and watched a bunch of the games and helped coach a little bit uh, the team when I could. 
and seeing the standard of those other teams, all of it's just, as you say, it's a finely tuned machine because you've got the hotels are worked out. So you're close to the, it's close to the field. So you're traveling a maybe a decent distance, but it's all laid on properly. Um, and then, yeah, the standard of the players, the standard of the other coach on the other team, the standard of the coaching within her club. I've just been really, really impressed. And I've seen some fantastic games like really, really high standard. Like I remember going down to uh, Greer, South Carolina was one of the first tournaments that I went to in ECNL and I, I was, I was blown away. It was like, a, it was like a division one college soccer game right off the bat. Like, you know, the standard was fantastic. And on, on Lauren's team, there's girls going to, to UNC. So it'd be with Anson endurance, uh, UCLA, Tennessee, like some really, really great schools and, and a, bunch of other players that are also going to great schools as well so it was fun to be around and, and also helping coach a little bit was fun because you could teach something and the kids would get it you know right away um, so really a great atmosphere great environment and in the US I don't think people realize just how lucky girls are because Lauren's story of Korea is kind of what it's like in other parts of the world there's not really that opportunity for girls to play and certainly nothing like the ECNL level where they can really thrive and grow and, and really, you know, open up their dreams. There's kids there who, who I've coached a little bit in the last year who are going to some great schools and the trajectory of their life will be different um, just because they've done so well at that ECNL level and then had the opportunity to go and play college soccer at the school they wanted to go to. So, Lauren, I'm interested to know, I, I, uh, for me, I have two young daughters. Uh, one is three and one is six, and I think... When I, on my own coaching career, I changed a lot once they came into this world. I just looked at things differently. You know, I didn't realize it at first, the way I coached and the way I addressed players and, and kind of dealt with conflict resolution and all those types of things. I didn't realize it at first. And then little by little, I started to see it come out in the way I coached and also in my business uh, experience. And so you, know, you obviously have been growing up through your dad's trajectory as a coach. You've seen him at his highs and his lows. You've seen him come home after tough losses and also big wins. How does that affect you and your decision and how you approach the game of soccer? Because, you know, it, it, Tom Byer is a, a, a great name in soccer and he always believes and preaches that it starts at home. You know, so soccer really starts at home and you're in that culture. Well, you were born into that culture, right? You're, you can't avoid the game of soccer. Uh, I always joke that my wife says she puts up with soccer because she really has for many years, uh, but you were born into it. So it's interesting to me that you started playing just a few years back. You obviously had a long runway in the game though. You know, what, what was it about seeing your dad and seeing his experiences that really led to you having that passion to start playing the game? Yeah, I think just seeing him enjoy his work and be passionate about it impacted my decision to start playing. And then also, just like seeing him be able to develop a team and then have them doing well, I was like, oh, I can be in that pathway as well. I can be involved in doing well with a team and improving a lot. I think, like, obviously one of my favorite things about soccer would be winning. Um, I think that's for every player. But for me, it's also seeing myself improve, seeing myself hit a new milestone. I definitely think getting to play with the fire in the ECNL was one of those moments, getting to see myself improve. And so... Just seeing that shared improvement and being able to have seen that throughout my dad's career and then also through myself playing soccer was definitely a big thing for me. Is your dad, is he tougher as a coach or as a dad? Probably as a coach. He does a good job of kind of switching the name tags when we're on the fields and he's training me. He's the coach and he's going to push me to be a better player. And then when we get off the field, he's going to tell me good job and be my parent and take care of me well. So, yeah. 
Martin, real quick, it's an easy soundbite. You know, I get to call games all over the country, and to me, still my favorite moment is watching my kids excel. They were basketball players, but I didn't miss a game. There's nothing better than seeing your kids excel in sports. No, it's, it's so, so fun. And, and uh, to, to Lauren's point, to see the improvement, you know, that's one of the things that's been so exciting to see is not just when she does well, but knowing how much she's put in to, to get to that point. You know, for example, when we were in, in come back from Korea, when Lauren said she wanted to start getting into soccer, I gave her like a program that she had to go and do in the basement. And I just thought like after a couple of nights, she won't do it anymore. But she was down there for like hours every night. And once she started doing that, I was like, right, she's serious about this. I'm going to really, really help her. And, and then fortunately, because of my job, I'm able to then help her get access to maybe a sports scientist who can help her get stronger um, or a sports psychologist who can, you know, give her some ideas or I can do that myself. Um, or if there's other areas where she's got, you know, needs help with like, say, speed work, I know the right person to put her to. But it really all started with her wanting to do it and her practicing on her own. You know, it'd be interesting, Jason, if you're playing with your kids, I'm sure they like to play soccer when you're there, but they probably don't do it a lot. Maybe they do, but Lauren's, my experience with Lauren was she didn't really want to do it that much unless I was there. But then when that moment came where she wanted to do it on her own, which is really important because if I was pushing her all the time, all the time, it wouldn't be something she was taking ownership of. But when she took ownership of it, it was really interesting to see how fast the development was and yeah, how much fun it is to see, um, you know, let's say them playing in a game that was a hard game and they came through and they won. Um, or sometimes they're in games, they don't even know that they're outmatched, but they come through and they win it. Um, or winning, winning a tournament or, or a state title or things like that. It's really, really fun to see, especially when I know how far she's come in, you know, such, such a short space of time. I think with, uh, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. I, you know, one of the, as I said before, I changed my life and how I approached everything, really. Uh, one of the key things there in, in that experience with my own kids was, especially my oldest daughter, when she first started playing the game, what really struck me was how much she responded to my, just me being positive you know, complimenting her or just being encouraging about what she was doing. And, you know, it, re it really made, it forced me to look internal and say, you know, was I as a manager in business doing that enough for employees? Was I as a coach doing that enough for players? And the answer was no. You know, and, and I knew that that was a, a big issue in my own development and my own growth as a manager of people or leader of people was that I need to be very positive. I need to be encouraging when, and, and really help enjoy those successes. And I think oftentimes as a player, you know, when you score a goal and you win a game, you celebrate, right? And it's important. And, and no matter how long you play in your career, I played nine years as a pro, every game that you win and every time you score, I didn't score many times, but every time you score, you celebrate. And often in business and in running clubs and in coaching at a high level, as you have, it's always hard, right? Everything is always difficult. You go from one challenge to the next you don't even the off season seems very very short because you're already getting ready for your first game and the pressure to sell out that game and have tickets sold and everything else and sponsorships so you're always feeling that but i i realized that i never took the time to be encouraging to those around me to compliment those around me is that something that you've experienced and you've felt in your own life as well in terms of how you manage players martin yeah i honestly think that's a huge 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 piece of it i, I really think that's something that um, it's either I've learned it or it's some somewhat natural, but it's something that I think really makes a difference. I think that, you know, you can definitely, sometimes you have to be hard on people and, and demand more and be on them. But if you do that all the time, 
then it, it, eventually, you know, if you're screaming and shouting at people all the time, it loses its power. So definitely finding that encouragement and, and that, that balance, you know, as a parent as well, it'd be, you know, often, especially initially coming home from, from a game and it's like, it hadn't, hadn't really clicked yet. You know, she was, was making mistakes and things like that. And I could have gone down the road of like, that wasn't good enough. Why are you doing this? Don't do that. But I really tried to, to take a breath and go like, hey, this was really good and that was really good and we can work on this. And I think that helped because I think that I knew that she wasn't where she could be or needed to be to, to play at the level she wanted to. But as she kept getting, I think, encouragement, she could talk to it herself. Like she kept believing in herself. She kept believing she could do it. Whereas if I'd constantly said, no, you're not doing well enough. That's not good enough. I'm not happy about it. That wouldn't have helped. And I think that would have also shown that my value was too wrapped up in her performance and that's a very difficult thing for parents as well to try and take that separation of their value not being found in how well their kid does. Um, they want to they want to be careful about that, and it's very difficult not to get you know that if your kid's the best kid on the team and they're scoring all the time, that can make you feel like you're very important, which you are. But really separate that from from how how the kid's doing and try not to then come down on them too too hard if if they don't have a good game. Certainly if they're not trying, then it's a different thing, but if they make mistakes, that's just part of the learning process. So Lauren, I'm sure you go and watch many of the games that your dad coaches in as well. Are you critical of him and his coaching after the games? <laughs> Not too much. No, there's an occasionally will be something where I'm like, Oh, why did he do that? And sometimes they'll explain it and I'll still disagree. Sometimes they'll explain it. I'll be like, Oh, that makes perfect sense. But yeah, I usually just enjoy supporting the teams he's coaching and enjoy hanging out. This is a great bonus to have Lauren Rennie alongside her talented father, Martin Rennie, as we're going back here quite some years, and it's just awesome to spend time with Martin and Lauren Rennie. We'll take one more break and be back with the final segment here on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade the studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL. Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because hashtag you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. We're joined by Martin Rennie, who's had success at every level in soccer in this country, also over in Korea, and his talented daughter, Lauren, who in short order has earned an opportunity to play at Indiana Wesleyan in Marion, Indiana for NAIA. Obviously, Martin, you're in the news again, stepping down from Indy 11. You and I had a candid talk about you kind of looking in the mirror and saying, hey, now's the time and you got to figure out the next move. With that, though, I'll start with you, Lauren. Obviously, there's highs and lows as a coach. How did you take the news of him stepping down? Because I feel like there was also the positive because at least for now, that means more time with him, spending time with you to become a better soccer player. How did you take the news? Yeah, it's obviously nice to have him around to coach me, to hang out as a family, um, go on vacations and things like that that we've sometimes missed. And I think as a family overall, we just took it really positively, support him in what he's doing and well, and that works. And Martin, you know, you were reflective on it. You've had all the success, you know, Vancouver, you decided that, you know, hey, we needed to get out of there and went over to Korea. So this time around, what made you decide, you know, hey, I need to step back right now and reassess? 
you know, obviously coming here to, to ND11, when I took over, the team was the worst team in the NESL. They weren't doing very well. And I feel like over the, the last three and a half years, I've really built the team up and made them one of, one of the top contenders in the USL Championship and one of the most respected teams. We've also done a lot of work to develop the club from the, from the ground all the way up. Like the structure that we've put in place is really robust and will stand a, t- you know, a, long, a lot longer than, than me as, as the head coach. Um, I just felt that, you know, the club is at that stage now where it, it's looking to get a, a new stadium and all being well, it'll get that stadium soon. But I felt that, you know, it's not going to happen in the next couple of years it, or, or if it does, it's going to take at least a couple of years. And I feel like until the stadium's in place, it wasn't really the right the right situation for me to just mark time because I've um, done a lot in my career and I've enjoyed a lot of success. And I just felt that to really have the success that, that I've had before and that I expect in the future, I needed a change. And so no hard feelings, nothing, nothing bad, lots of good relationships, lots of good memories, great um, relationships with the fans and, and the front office, the players and the people. Um, but I just felt that, that now was the right time. Difficult to, to make a decision like that. But also as a coach, you have to be, you know, managing your your career. I've been a coach for 15 years. I've done it all over the world. And sometimes you have to make strategic decisions that you think will be best in the, in the long run and best for your family. And that's what we we decided to do this time. So Martin, uh, two things that I've always admired about your career in coaching have been the way your teams attack, first and foremost, uh, and then the opportunities that you've always presented to young players. I've, I've happened to know a few of the players that went under your tutelage over in Indy, uh, Tyler Pasher was a young player that came to Pittsburgh first, and it didn't take long to see the the to see what Pash had in him. I mean, he's one of the fastest players on the field that I've ever seen as a left-footed player as well, and carves up people very easily. Uh, and then guys like Cameron Lindley, you know, young up-and-coming stars in the U.S. and a national team kid and everything else. But it's interesting to me, like that the young players that you brought in, the attacking style. How do those two things correlate? Is it direct correlation that you wanted the young, the, the, the raw ingenuity of those players that, you know, sometimes a lack of discipline and you were able to kind of use that to your advantage? Or was it just that you, you liked finding opportunities for those young players within your style of play? Yeah, I think, you know, a little bit of both. I think, you know, in the last window there, we actually sold four players to Major League Soccer. And that's almost unheard of for one USL team, an independent USL team to do that. And we did it, you know, in, in, again, I think it's a sign of all the structure that we've put in place for a long time, including scouting, recruitment, training um, and development. Um, But generally, the guys who can do that are the younger ones. Um, And when we were in Carolina, Dean will remember a whole host of guys that we did the same thing with. Josh Gardner, Daniel Palladini, Johnny Steele, Matt Watson, Floyd Franks. Um, Etienne Barbara, Brad Knight and uh, Brad Russin. There was a whole bunch of guys, young guys that we worked with and that we developed. And I think that at the USL level, especially, um, it's a good league for younger players because they're ambitious, they're hungry, they're determined. And if they see that pathway to a, a higher level, more money, bigger stage, then they're very, very motivated to be successful. Now, you've got to get the balance right because if a guy thinks, oh, I'll just come, come there and do well for a while and then I'll be off, it doesn't work like that because you have to buy into the team and be part of the team. But if you're a young, hungry, talented player like those guys that we've mentioned and you really work at it and buy into the team ethic, then I think then there's great opportunities to develop and, and move up. So that's part of it, I think, as well. Young Younger players have that energy and that drive and that determination. But I've also had some great 
let's say, veteran players as well. If you look at Capone Lowe, um, was an amazing player at Carolina Railhawks. Iosi Garcia, um, who, who's here, for example, in Indy 11. And there's a, a whole bunch of others. So there's always got to be that balance of leadership, of experience, and youth and energy, because if you don't have that, then it tends to fall off one way or the other. Um, but I think those experienced players over the years, Mark Schulte in Carolina was another one, those guys help to develop those young players because it's not just about the coach, it's also about the other senior players. And if they're the right guys, that helps build your culture, that helps drive those young guys. Because a lot of young players need to learn what it means to be a professional soccer player. They, they think they know, but they don't necessarily know. And, and I look at it like one of the guys I coached was a player called Lee young Pugh who played for me in Vancouver. He played for Tottenham. He played for Borussia Dortmund. He played in four World Cups. Um, he played over 140 times for Korea. He's just like a legend, one of the best players I've ever worked with. Never once did he question, why are we doing this? Never once did he have a problem with the tactics. Never once did he think, oh, we're, we should be doing this differently. He was just a guy who'd listened to what his job was. He got on with it every day and he did it. And he's a multi, multi-millionaire, hugely successful professional player. Sometimes you're working with even kids who think they know more. You know, they've watched a YouTube video and they, 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 they think that, why are we doing this? Or this isn't right, or that isn't right. And yet these people who are their real top, 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 top players, their mindset is completely different. So it's interesting because I the, the modern day pro player is a lot different than the pro player when you first started coaching. Right? And, and back when I was playing, and I feel like I'm gonna sound like the old guy here uh, yelling at the clouds. But so, you know, times are different. The game has evolved, especially in North America. What's the biggest difference in the culture of the teams now versus, or the culture of the locker room now than, you know, call it Cleveland City Stars when you're first getting started? Is social media a big part of that? And is it, is it a positive, is it a negative? What, what do you say? Yeah, I think now we live in the information age where everybody can find out whatever they want in an instant. I don't know about you, but if I watch The Voice, then after a few episodes, I feel like I know everything about singing. Um, and probably you guys just noticing you're, you're smiling, you probably do the same. And that's what it's like in soccer. You know, everyone knows, thinks they know what a coach should do and how a coach should should do their job. So everybody feels like they could do it better. But but players now will watch, let's say, you know, a documentary on Amazon about Manchester City and think, oh, we should just do what Manchester City do. Or, you know, they'll watch go on YouTube and see training sessions. Oh, look at what they're doing. We should just do that. And it's not that simple. Um, and I think that, that that's one of the biggest things that I've seen that's changed. I think social media does have an impact as well, because I think that players who are not, like if you're a really, really high level player, you've always had to deal with the media, like the written press, the TV, the radio, and you've had to have a thick skin and be able to deal with that, that pressure. Now, players who aren't that high level are now very aware of what other people think of their performance. And so that can be positive, but that can be negative. And if they can't find a good way mentally to manage that, they're on this roller coaster of ups and downs based on other people's opinions. And social media is so much to do with trying to present yourself in a positive way so that other people like you or other people think you're doing well. And that's not a healthy way to live because if, you're, if your value comes from other people's opinion, you're, you're going to be on a roller coaster and you're never going to have a situation where everybody likes you, where everybody values you, where everybody's happy with you. And so that's a big danger that social media brings, in my opinion. So I'll, I'll make it very specific. You'll have one thing. I'll have one thing that you would tell a coach within the ECNL that's managing up and coming players, right? Those 15, 16, 17 year olds that are looking to make the jump to the next level. 
what's the most important, most impactful soccer advice that you can give to them? One thing. And then for a player that's listening to this, what's the most important thing for them to focus on in the next six months of their development? If they're say a U17 player. Yeah, good questions. Well, I mean, I think one of the biggest things that I think that I've learned over the years and learned it through probably through big losses at times, because you learn a lot from defeat, is that when it comes to the crunch time, when it comes to the pressure moment, when you 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 could, let's say you're in a tournament and if you lose, it's over. And if you win, you move on. That's the time you have to trust your training. That's the time you have to trust your identity and your philosophy and all the things that you've worked on over and over. You have to do your best to stick with it, to stay calm and to stay focused. What happens a lot in those big high pressure moments is the game becomes a 50-50 game where you just kick it and hope that nobody nobody does, you know, nobody breaks you down or that you don't make a mistake. But if you're a team, let's say, that can play, can tr- can move the ball, can work, keep doing it under the pressure. Keep trying to stick to your identity because that's what made you good in the first place. And try and stay calm and believe in just the game, not, not like focus on the game, not on the occasion of if we lose, we could go out. Just try and play. So that's that's what I would say for coaches is trying to help and try and keep your players in that moment because if you're too if you're if you if you go crazy at the players then they become scared to make mistakes and then they get worse. So that would be the, the big thing for coaches. I think for for players, um, it's hard to just say one thing, but since we're kind of on this theme of the psychological piece, I would go with that because. Players are going to come across all different types of teammates and they're going to come across all different types of coaches. And so some of them are going to encourage them and some of them are going to be really, really hard on them. So they have to get to a place where they can mentally handle all of those things. And to do that, you have to become strong in your own mind. So I would try and help them find a positive view of themselves, despite what goes on in the game or despite what a coach is, if a coach is negative or their parents are negative, Get a strong voice in your head, like get positive voice going in your head and keep it going and then visualize how you want the game to go. Visualize how you want things to go and set some goals and work towards those goals. They've already got talent if they're playing in the ECNL, but if they could set those goals and have a strong mental image of themselves, then I think they can take that step to the next level um, because there's lots of lots of good players, but it's those who can perform when it counts under pressure that are really the ones who are going to step up and make a difference. That's good. I mean, Lauren, you uh, you obviously, you had a quick accelerated path here as well in the game. So you started playing and then you had to kind of hit the ground sprinting in order to attract the attention of college coaches. There's a lot of parents that listen to this podcast, a lot of players as well. What do you think was the one thing that was most impactful in your process of trying to get the attention of college coaches, trying to be seen? What, you know, what was that one thing that really helped snap this whole model together for you? Yeah, I think that just trying to be really consistent in my performances while also looking to be in contact with the college coaches first, making sure I was reaching out to them. Um, That's probably quite obvious. But then when I would get a phone call with them, making sure that I showed a lot of interest in their college, even if I had a few on the table, making sure that I had particular interest in theirs and making sure then that they could reciprocate that was a big thing for me because it could be easy to say, okay, if this call doesn't go well, I have a few other coaches I could call, it would be fine, but it's very helpful to make sure that each call goes well and then that each game they're at goes well and just be consistent with showing interest in their particular program. 
Lauren Rennie, it's such a delight to have you on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. We wish you the best of luck during your time at Indiana Westland. Thank you so much for joining us, Lauren. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Martin Rennie, I will always remain a fan. Wish you great luck in your next step, including watching your daughter excel. Thank you so much for reconnecting and joining us on this week's Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. You're welcome. Thanks, Dean. Thanks, Jason. Indeed. Thank you, Martin Rennie. Thank you, Lauren Rennie. And thank you, Jason Cutney, the ECNL Boys Commissioner, who always does such a great job adding outstanding value to our podcast, as does Christian Labors. Also, I want to thank Andrea Wheeler and the entire gang at the ECNL for each and every one of them and all of you. I'm Dean Linky, and we'll see you in two weeks for another edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info at theecnl.com. Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL, more than a league.